to me, I don't think AI exists. I don't think there's such a thing as AI. I think it's a it's a bad idea to consider it as something real. And what I mean by that is that there's not any particular kind of software that's AI. AI is just a way of thinking about any software. Welcome to SHI's Innovation Heroes, a podcast exploring the people and businesses driving change in our drastically disrupted world. I'm your host, Peter Bean. Every few years, I'll see an article that revisits Steven Spielberg's Minority Report, talking about just how much the 2002 movie got right about the direction of our modern-day digital world. And every few years, it feels like we're getting closer and closer to its sci-fi vision, for better and for worse. Gesture-driven multi-touch interfaces? Check. Intelligent TV screens that are watching our every move? Check. Voice-controlled homes, self-driving cars, and facial recognition? Check, check, and check. But what about the film's central plot? The idea that a hyper-intelligent, superhuman network of beings can actually predict the future, can see and know our behaviors and choices before we even make them. What he's doing now we call scrubbing the image, looking for clues as to where the murder's gonna happen. Original running bond brick pattern, streamlined early Georgian details. Brick has been repointed. I'm sorry to say, but even this terrifying, liberty-destroying concept is edging closer and closer to being another checkbox in this age of algorithm-fueled, behavior-modifying big tech. I bring this all up because the Minority Report, in its vision of the future, is suddenly more relevant than ever, thanks to the new film just released this year. Netflix's The Social Dilemma is a documentary that follows multiple Silicon Valley visionaries as they recount how they helped build the social media empires that have taken over our lives and their newfound mission to right a wrong, to fix our dangerous relationship with these data-driven behemoths before it's too late. Jaron Lanier is one of the leading voices in The Social Dilemma. He's known as one of the founders of virtual reality and is one of the most outspoken, well-known critics of Silicon Valley's dark side. It just so happens he was also part of the small group of futurists that Spielberg hired to help create and bring to life the technological vision we see in the Minority Report. He joins me today on Innovation Heroes, where I'm going to ask him about the social dilemma and what it means for digital leaders in our corporate world. We'll also cover his recent work with Microsoft, whom he's teamed up with to create some really incredible innovations, most recently and notably Together Mode on Microsoft Teams. I've been looking forward to speaking to Jaron about how his warnings for the future might be avoided, but also to share some hope. What can we all do to make our digital realities just a little bit more human? Jared, it's a real privilege to have you on the show today, and I really want to thank you for being with us. Before we start talking about technology, I want to ask a question really specifically about you. Other people have given you a lot of titles over the years. You know, you've been called the founding father of, of VR, the Oracle of Tech, and you know, the conscience of Silicon Valley. And I recognize that none of these titles really came from you. And I really want to know how you see yourself in the place, your place in the world of technology today. I don't think it's 
functional to think too much about oneself in that way. So I, I don't have a ready answer for you. That's actually a pretty good answer. <laughs> Gives me some insight into how you see yourself exactly what I was really looking for. In watching The Social Dilemma, it's really an eye-opening and scary film for a lot of people. And I wanted to talk about how these themes are starting to enter the enterprise, especially as we're all spending more time working remote and immersed in digital environments all day long. Do you see parallels or some of, have some of the same concerns that, that you talked about in your book and in the film about where enterprise social apps are headed? One of the things I want to mention is I haven't had a chance yet to see the film, so I'm not sure what impression the film makes overall. Um, of course, I am familiar with my own work, so I can <laughs> talk about that. Um, so in enterprise software, I've occasionally seen outbreaks of some of the same problems, but much less often. I've occasionally seen issues where people within an enterprise will get kind of strangely cranky or paranoid or, you know, where their fight or flight responses will be raised, but it's, it's rather rare. It's one point of evidence that when we see these problems in the broad public uh, services like the Facebook brands and YouTube and so on, that we're seeing something that doesn't have to exist. We're seeing problems that are not inevitable. That's extremely important to understand what I have seen in companies occasionally is people working themselves into a sort of a fanatical frenzy. I think something like that might have happened very bizarrely, let's say, at uh, an e-commerce company that runs a lot of auctions in which people were accused of uh, ganging up on somebody by sending them uh, pestilent <laughs> creatures. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that kind of a thing is a real breakdown in human character. And we've seen such breakdowns in ourselves since ancient times. There's nothing really new under the sun here. But what there is is um, a way of focusing and emphasizing some of the failures of the human character to a greater degree than is typical. And, and that's something we do see in some of the online designs. But, but in enterprises, only rarely. Yeah, the design is is what scares me. Like you mentioned, emphasizing those failures within the design. I think a lot of people who are starting to pay attention to these concepts that you've been talking about for a long time that, that maybe were blind to them before, as they learn these things, they're going to go back to work and they're going to notice these things, these notifications, these taggings, these ellipses that, that exist in, in enterprise technology and the existence or the experience rather being so similar. I'm thinking that people are going to be worried about that. And, and I'm just wondering if they need to be or not. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I I think the right way to answer uh, a question about whether you should be alarmed about something is to look at the results and to try to be empirical about it. And so in the case of broad public social media, I think we do see results that are really disturbing. We do see a rise of paranoia and xenophobia, conspiracy theories, and so on, resistance to common sense public health measures, I don't know, just all kinds of things. So the, the time to be worried about whether that's happening is in, in enterprises is when we see evidence it's happening. I'll tell you, in enterprise software, I probably worry more about some other things. I worry a little bit about inappropriate uses of AI. I worry a little bit about the inadvertent promotion of groupthink that can make people lose track of what they're really doing. 
And uh, there are a couple of things like that that I think are problematic sometimes. Actually, fortunately, the enterprise world has been giving us an example in a way of how you can have software that connects people that doesn't make them quite as crazy. On the AI use, I want to go back to that for mm-hmm. a second. And, and I, I know you want to be optimistic generally. And everything I read, you, you describe yourself as an optimist. So I'm going to challenge you to be a little more pessimistic than maybe you usually want to be. But we, when I talk to people about this, maybe people who aren't as in tune to it as yourself, I, I hear things like, you know, are we all just going to be products of the corporate algorithm machine in, in 10 years where employee, mm-hmm. employers can spy on our every move or, you know, turn a knob and elicit a certain outcome in our daily behavior? Very similar to how the social companies are doing today. AI is something that could do that. And, and I, I'm curious if you've seen anything right now in enterprise software where that could quickly spin out of control the way it did with social. This is a topic where I'm extremely opinionated. I want to try to stay positive here, and I want to give you some examples of things I like. So the first thing I want to say is, uh, to me, I don't think AI exists. I don't think there's such a thing as AI. I think it's it's a bad idea to consider it as something real. And what I mean by that is that there's not any particular kind of software that's AI. AI is just a way of thinking about any software. You know, I've done software that's been called AI, like, you, you know, the uh, the sort of face filters that you see on Snap where stuff's added to your face or where you're t- changed to someone else. To my knowledge, I'm the first person to have done that. And at the time, it didn't even occur to us or anybody that that would be called AI. That was uh, signal processing, image processing. There wasn't any sense of AI in it. I mean, why would there be? And yet now it's routinely called AI. So why? Well, because AI is not actually any particular kind of software. It's a way of thinking about software. It's a way of thinking about software in which the computer is not a tool or a gathering place for people or anything like that. Instead, it's like a new creature, a new colleague, a new personage that will join you on the stage. And when you think of the computer that way, a bunch of stuff becomes kind of nuts, One thing is that you make it harder for people to enjoy their own self-worth. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. For some reason, I've been using the example of gardeners lately. Actually, it's not just – the reason why is because gardeners are ultimately the frontline workers that keep the hill I live on in California from burning down. And (laughs) each summer, which is something we worry more and more about. And so let's suppose in a few years somebody comes out with a gardening robot. Now, there's a couple of ways you could think about that gardening robot. You could say, well, the gardening robot's going to throw gardeners out of work. And gardeners were often undocumented people, not paid very well. And you can say, well, it's not very interesting labor. Who, you know, who cares if they're thrown out of work? Some, something will correct or whatever. But there's another way of thinking about it. What if instead we thought of gardening robots as a new opportunity to make gardening more creative, to make the world more beautiful and interesting, to expand the role of culture in our lives. So, for instance, what if gardeners suddenly were designing new topiary and new interesting patterns and gardening, new ways of clipping trees, and they got royalties from robots that use their designs? It's an alternate world in which people would have expanded ways to make a living, the world would become more interesting and beautiful, and 
people would find more pride instead of less pride in their lives as technology advanced. And yet the interesting thing about that world is that the fundamental algorithms and the hardware, none of the technology is different in the two different worlds I described. It's just a philosophy question. If you think of a robot as a way that people can become more like artists and contribute more and more valuable data in more and more new ways, then robots create more jobs instead of taking away jobs. They create more opportunities for pride and creativity and recognition of human value than they take away. And so the AI idea is an optional idea. You don't have to think of the robot as being this new entity. If you do, you make the world duller and you reduce the roles of people. If you think of it as a canvas for a new type of artist, all of a sudden things turn around and you make the world more beautiful and you make more roles for people. So I think the, the very idea of AI is unnecessary and damaging. That is fascinating. I just feel like it's impossible for people to break that bind that you're talking about and how they view AI. I think the majority of us view it in that way, that negative way. And I don't know how we get around that. How do you think we start changing people's minds about it? I think with counter examples, with software systems that celebrate people and recognize that computers are a way of bringing people together. I'll give you an example of something that Microsoft is uh, running right now that I think does that particularly well, which is GitHub. So GitHub is an online service where people collaborate to create new software. And it's an interesting thing to look at because Unlike most online gathering places, it hasn't been subsumed by negativity and partisanship and paranoia and nonsense. It's yet another existence proof that the online world doesn't have to be terrible. It can be beautiful. One of the things that intrigues me is the first year or two of any new online social media or hub, before it gets big, before it starts to become commercial, there's always this little honeymoon period. And during that period, a lot of these things are actually kind of charming and positive and admirable. An example is the first year of Twitter was kind of charming. Even the first year of YouTube was kind of charming. The first years of uh, TikTok have been, I think, charming and, and, and pretty good. The negativity comes in once they become large enough to become tempting targets for people who are cruel and want to manipulate others, but also when the advertising, the so-called advertising economy starts to be influential in the network and you start to see the algorithm start to be adjusted for influence and persuasion. But the fact that there's this honeymoon period before that happens teaches us something, which is once again, that the online world doesn't have to be horrible. You can take one of two lessons from that, you can say that things get horrible when they scale to be big, or you could say things get horrible when certain financial incentives come into place. I think the latter lesson is the correct lesson to take. Let's look at the honeymoon period concept that you just mentioned and apply it to enterprise software for a second. So let's say we're just starting to come out of the honeymoon period for some of these very, very socialized online applications. And the opportunity now exists for some of these things to happen and creep their way in. Do you think that that some of the efforts that companies like Microsoft are making with things like Together Mode, integrating things like Headspace into enterprise applications, building for the human experience, not for 
the productivity experience necessarily is going to circumvent that and, and keep us from degrading into that state? Well, you know, <laughs> I'm very hopeful that Microsoft, as well as Microsoft's competitors, will make more and more products that don't bring out the worst in people. And I think thus far, Microsoft has been pretty good at it. What the future holds is something that's really hard to say. You know, dealing with human character, the relationship between software and human character is a delicate thing. And I knew the people who started Google quite well. I sold them a company early on, and also many of the others, uh, people who run Twitter and stuff. And a lot of times, good people can kind of fall into a bad design, and it can suck them further and further in. It's like stepping into, you know, canonical movie quicksand or something. And so I think bad designs can come from good people in the digital world. We're all still learning to do this. But so far, so far, I think enterprise stuff's been pretty good on this count. If you look up virtual reality on Wikipedia, you don't have to scroll very long until you land on Jaron Lanier. While the origins of the technology go back as far as the 1800s, it wasn't until Jaron's pioneering work in the 1980s that the phrase itself, virtual reality, started to be popularized. It was around that time Jaron founded VPL Research and developed the technology that would one day go on to creating one of the coolest toys ever invented, in my humble opinion, the Power Glove. Power Glove. Everything else is child's play. And while everything Jaron is warning about in The Social Dilemma is certainly worthy of our concern, his VR work speaks to the optimists and the children in all of us. I wanted to ask him about his work with Microsoft on making teams more human with things like Together Mode, and also see if there's a brighter future ahead for us, especially in our new remote everything reality. One of the surprises I encountered in reading about your early work at VPL was how it eventually led to the Power Glove. And please forgive me for being a little nerdy here. You know, I still have mine, and quite frankly, I'll always treasure it. And- <laughs> remember it for providing me my first kind of virtual world experience. Oh, gosh, so, yeah. so I got to ask, and I'm sorry, I have to ask, what was yeah. your original vision for that device and how people were going to use it? Oh, 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 oh. Well, you know, what happened was I was really obsessed with this idea that the way we program computers was wrong. I was obsessed with the idea that that when we write code and we create protocols for different coded modules to talk to each other, that we're creating this nerdy network that was impossible to keep track of that would become intractable and would become too easy for bad actors to hack, but also that it just brought out the wrong aspect of people, it, it, that programmers shouldn't have to be so nerdy to program. And I had this idea of instead... This is a bit of a hard thing to explain, but I'm going to give it a try. So this is called phenotropic programming. Way, way back in the early 80s, I made a few systems as a demonstration uh, in which there was no compiler, not even no interpreter, no text representation of code at all. But instead, what you had was a little graphic user interface that would show you the bits. And then there would be a graphic interface that could operate 
such a user interface and apply constraints to it so you could manipulate the bits in order to get them to do things. And you could build up uh, a sort of a stack of user interfaces, operating user interfaces, where there was never any other kind of variable passed between them. And you could position yourself anywhere in it as a user and hopefully understand the user interface. So you could start with bits, turn them into opcodes, turn that into controlled programs that didn't break. It's a sort of a, a live high-level interpretive assembler or something like that. And then from that, turn it into a spreadsheet and from that, turn it into a simulation. The first version was actually on a pre-release Macintosh, was it? It might have been on a Lisa, but it was like on early Apple stuff working with the original Mac crew. Andy Hertzfeld, who wrote the original Mac OS, helped me make the first one of these. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. There was an even earlier one on 8-bit chips. I forgot about that one. We did one on, uh, what were those early Intel chips, 6502s? We did one on a computer with a bunch of 6502s running together. Anyway, this is all ancient, ancient, ancient history. But um, the point is, it's a vision of computation where instead of writing code and getting it perfect, you kind of play it. You, you kind of are interacting with it to get what you want and the vision I had is that it would be like performing jazz where you improvise music, that eventually you'd get to a user interface where you're kind of intuitively and with your body physically interacting with how the computer operates in order to program it. And instead of it being a nerdy intellectual thing, it would become an emotional, physical thing using body intelligence. And you might ask, why would you want to do that? I and the know, reason why... I get it. It's beautiful. Well, <laughs> the reason why... I was really interested in the math that people do when they improvise jazz on a piano. And, and the interesting thing is that a, a, a jazz pianist is solving math problems faster than they could do by hand or in any other way. There's that, this enormous part of your brain is connected to your body, the, the motor cortex, and it has intelligence. It's still part of your brain. And so if you can work with your whole brain, with your whole body, um, I think it would sort of just bring out more in people, more beauty, more intelligence. And also that's how we connect to each other. Like nerdy abstract connections between people aren't really complete. So anyway, I had this much more organic vision of how the future of programming would happen. So a guy named Tom Zimmerman came to one of my talks about this in the early 80s, and he'd been working on glove instrumentation ideas. And we together made the first, it was called the Data Glove, which was the first virtuality glove that was sold and was part of most of the early 80s VR systems, including the first commercial one that our company sold, but then also the ones at NASA and other places. It still kind of bugs me that a lot of the modern hand input devices used with virtuality are more similar to the way game controllers evolved with a bunch of buttons and stuff. I really wish we were doing more general hand pose. Uh, that's starting to change. You're starting to see support for, because uh, you can measure hand pose now remotely. You don't need to have wear a glove to do it. So you're starting to see that come in a little bit more, but it still isn't quite the standard. And I think it's just better. I love that answer. I can just picture somebody standing there like an orchestra conductor right? Putting their heart and soul into either the body movements or the music that they're hearing in their head. And out of that action outputs code, software. I don't know. That just sounds beautiful to me, being able to put your emotion into it that way. So look, it's taken a long time since then for VR to reach mass adoption. And I think it's still pretty far off, likely because of some of the things that you talked about and that maybe the vision is, is changed to, to something that it was different from what you and the pioneers were thinking. But my guess is that this pandemic and everything that's happening in the world around us is likely accelerating it. 
We're seeing tons of adoption across digital workplace technologies like Teams, right, as well as industrial settings, remote field workers, manufacturing, medicine. I'm curious how you see the, the current digital disruption and its effect on the future of VR. My opinion on VR is that the main obstacle for it is that the commercial side of VR has been trying to emulate two prior markets, neither of which are really very comfortable fit. The biggest example of that is gaming, where gaming is a real market and VR gaming is a thing. I'm not saying that there's not anything there, but it's a little, it's a little bit of an awkward fit. And I think a lot of people who thought, well, people want a game in VR and it'll just like become huge. I think they're a little wrong because I don't think they understand the emotion of VR and it just, it doesn't quite work as well. It's not a totally failed connection, but it's just not that strong. And the other one is cinema with this idea that it would be like Netflix or something where there'd be these VR experiences and you'd pick one and then you'd be in it for an hour. I don't think that works either. Those two business paradigms are the main obstacle. The reason gaming doesn't work is I think people kind of don't understand gaming. I think uh, that might be a strange thing to say because a lot of people make money from gaming. So you'd think that they understand it. But I actually think in a lot of cases they don't fully. Gaming is not about what you see on the screen, but there's sort of two things going on. One is an intellectual engagement where you're building a skill and Doing that inside a headset is actually distracting if that's the thing you're into. And then the other side of it is social, where you're there with the other people on your couch or across the network. And the headset actually is not great for that either in most cases. It's it, at least not yet. Um, and so I think it actually doesn't work for the current understanding of gaming on either count. Um, and then the problem with uh, treating it like the movie business is that it's... Uh, Let's say you spend a month making a virtual reality experience, which somebody can enjoy and explore in 20 seconds. That's a very typical ratio. And then you take a year to make one that somebody can pretty fully explore in five minutes. How much does it take to package something that somebody can enjoy for an hour? And the answer is quite a long time. And very few people are ready or willing to put in that kind of development care and effort. Uh, so what does work? Well, you know, what I have found works is uh, sort of social first approaches to VR, where people are connected together, they're talking, they're doing things, especially if they can do things together, which is the very rarest thing. Right now, in most social VR, you have to make the virtual world before you go into it, and then people can chat or look around at things. But in those occasional examples that have been done where people can actually create something while they're inside together socially, I think that's the ticket. I think that's when it, when all the, all the um, particular emotional qualities of VR click together and make sense. It's different from anything that ex anything else that exists right now. You tend to either have content feeds where you're sort of passively receiving things, or maybe you're posting things and then receiving things other people posted, or you have real-time connection, like on video calls, with Zoom being the most uh, common reference point in the culture right now. But this would be different. This would be sort of this in-between place that's live and simultaneous in real time, like a video call, but also is about content like oh, TikTok or something where people are creating things. That combination 
it's something people haven't experienced yet unless they've worked with kind of rarefied VR stuff. And I think that's magic. That's, that's when it'll really click together. My favorite question to talk about in the virtual meetings industry, and just, you know, that's what I've done my whole life, video conferencing, virtual meetings. It's been my lifelong job, career, enjoyment, nerd, fantasy. It's what I do. And what I talk about all the time with people in the industry is, you know, how do we make virtual meetings more human, more real, more, in, in ways that no, none of us have considered yet? Like I ask this question, I get answers about features, and that's not what I'm looking for, right? In ways that no one's considered yet. And I feel like if, if you build on that, you're going to give me the answer to that question. <laughs> well, you know, I've been concerned with this for a long time. So the usual way I've approached it is not to say that some kind of virtual connection over a computer medium with virtual reality or some other design, I don't think that that replaces physical connection. In fact, what I've always said about virtual reality is that the right way to think about it is that it's inherently inferior in some ways, and it gives you a sort of a palate cleansing. Like in the old days, I always used to say that the very most magical moment in, in virtual reality is after you take the goggles off. And we used to sneak like a geode or a flower or something in front of people. And then they take off the goggles and they'd be able to see that thing kind of with fresh eyes because you're used to virtual reality. But the same thing is even more true of other people. If you've been interacting with avatars and you look at a real person, it's pretty amazing, actually. You start to perceive people for just a moment as if you'd just been born into this world. I mean, it doesn't last long. It's just this precious little moment of palate cleansing where you can kind of see the world afresh. All right. Having said that, the pandemic period has made things different where we've really had no choice but to do a lot more connection through computer networks. And so in that case, I kind of shifted and I was like, well, how can we make this less miserable? Like, what can we do to make it better? And that's where Together Mode came from. So uh, Together Mode is just a, a reshuffling of how you do video conferences uh, that's informed by the science side of virtual reality. It's, it doesn't use the technology of virtual reality, obviously. It just uses the same old uh, devices that are in any computer, the camera and the microphone and the screen. But it redoes it as informed by what we've learned from the science of virtual reality to just give people a bit more access to the nonverbal cues between each other to allow them to have richer interpersonal connections. And it does test out to make it better. And I think to a certain degree that the change we're experiencing is here to stay. I mean, we're not, we're not going back to the way it was before, at least in business communication. I, I hope I don't see my friends any less than I did before all of this, but I'll be honest, I do hope I travel less because of all of this and I can use these tools better and have that better experience, right? You know, I'll tell you, I had for years been thinking we need to really improve remote meetings to reduce air travel, not because of the virus, but because of climate change problems. So for now, based on the technologies we really know about, we should hope that one little silver lining from the virus is that it does teach us to run the world with less air travel. And so I hope Together Mode can be a small part of that. I want to go back to a point on Together Mode because we're definitely moving in a different order, which is totally fine because I prefer it that way. But I, I did want to make sure that our listeners understood the um, the exhaustion that comes with this new mode of work that we're all in and, and specifically how Together Mode is is meant to address that. For most people who maybe don't understand this all that much, that to me is the core of understanding for them mm. on how they could make it better. 
Can you just well, explain that, the, the, what the sure. vision was around that? So there's a few different things going on with conventional video conferencing that, that don't work out well for people. Uh, one problem is that the way we perceive other people is very specific. We have physiological circuits <laughs> that are uh, are built in that are genetic that help us perceive others in ways that are more acute and sort of faster and harder to override in real time than the way we perceive other stuff like rocks and whatnot. And the reason why is, um, you know, as we were evolving, we had to worry about the other people in our, in our environment. Will they be hostile? You know, are they potential mates? What's going on with them? So we have this incredible ability to perceive each other. Now, in conventional video conferencing, when people are just in squares, there's a couple of things that are just really extraordinary from a kind of a physiological perception point of view. One is there are all these faces that are just forward and seem kind of close. Even if you know intellectually that it's not true, a lot of your brain is just periodically like startled and alarmed by that. And then another issue is that normally when we encounter people, there are a lot of channels of communication between us that are nonverbal. There's an enormous number of signals that have to do with eye and head motion and slight changes in the musculature of the face and skin tone and just a whole world of things. The MIT researcher Sandy Pentland has called these the honest signals because sometimes they're used to try to evaluate whether we trust someone else. And the thing about those signals is that they're very spatial. Like you have to know where the person is in space relative to you because they're projected spatially in a particular direction. And when everybody's in a grid on the screen, nobody knows where the other people are. So these signals are sent out kind of randomly and are almost impossible to interpret. And often there are false signals that indicate um, aggression or lack of trustworthiness or all kinds of things that, that aren't, wouldn't really be there if you could perceive the person in proper space. The most famous of these is eye contact. And this is the one that most people have heard of, but it's not the only one. And that is to say, you think you're looking at the other person's eyes, but because the camera is up at the top of the screen or to the side or something, they see you as looking away. And so they're not perceiving you in the natural way that you might think you're projecting to them. And that it doesn't exactly lead to mistrust, but what it leads to is a kind of a weird deadening of the meeting. But it becomes serious once you start to get to four or five people, you start to see meetings really break down. What happens with together mode is we take away the backgrounds and we put the people into a shared virtual scene, typically kind of like seating as if in a classroom or a, the or a theater. And you see yourself seated there with everybody else. And then you can see how other people perceive you in that space. And people start to subconsciously kind of perform, if you like, in a proper way so that the way their expressions are done makes sense to the other people in the context of that virtual space, which is a bit of a subtle idea, but it works. And what's remarkable is even in a large crowd with like 50 people, people re are able to interact with each other across that whole field of 50 people kind of the way they could if they were in a room with 50 people. There's a mutual recognition and an ability for people to send subverbal cues to each other. And then there's another little trick, which is really subtle, which is uh, 
the eye contact problem isn't solved, but it's avoided because the geometry, it's as if everybody is looking at each other through a giant virtual mirror. And the brain turns out to be really bad at keeping track of where eyes should be looking through the mirror. So it's just not as good as at noticing that there are eye contact errors. So we kind of sneakily avoid the eye contact problem. The sum of all that is when you test people using together mode, you see superior levels of relaxation. People are more relaxed. You see brainwaves indicating attention go up. And then when you test them for things like retention or memory of who was there or just subjective state of being and attention and state of happiness, everything gets better and and actually kind of dramatically better. So it's a great example of how design can make a difference. Uh, It's also a great example about how the science we learn from virtual reality can be applied outside of virtual reality. Thank you, Jaren, for joining me today. Um, I hope we get to do this again. I I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. Thank you for being an optimist and thank you for being on the show. Oh, well, thank you so much. I came into this interview knowing Jaren was going to take the optimist approach, yet wanting to probe him and challenge him on some of the pessimist approach concerns that would come from enterprise software and and how closely it seems to mimic this social software that has put us all down this dark path. And I didn't get the kinds of answers that I expected from Jaron. I liken it to how he said AI doesn't really exist. It isn't really real. And it, it simply comes down to how we think about it when it comes to creating software and the analogy around Gardner and the choice that we make about robot gardeners and whether we can look at it from a hopeful standpoint or we can look at it from a negative standpoint. And coming out of that interview, I feel like the onus is not on the enterprise softwares and the developers of them. The onus is on us as the end users, as the people who execute our daily behaviors with these technologies to take the more hopeful approach, to take the more positive approach and understand why and how we're doing it. Thank you so much for listening to SHI's Innovation Heroes, the podcast exploring IT leaders who are transforming business and life in the post-pandemic era. Due to the upcoming holidays, we're going to be publishing the next episode of Innovation Heroes a little early, so you can look for episode six, our season finale, next week. If you like this episode and the show, please support us by leaving a five-star rating and a comment. Without you, our show wouldn't exist.